through them. So the series has been Pioneers. We're walking through Acts. If you just joined the series or you've been with us, we've been talking about the whatever, whenever, however faith. Not the only if it goes this way, only if it happens this way, or only when I'm ready, Lord. No, no, no. Whatever I ask you to do, whenever I call you, and however I ask you to do it. Are you in? There were three would-be followers we started out the series with and we didn't hear from them again. A pioneer is one who walks into the uncertainty of the future, goes where someone else has not gone before, but follows their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We've tracked 12 specifically. Uh, Peter, the influential leader, was in the group. James, the passionate one, aggressive. John, the man of conviction. It's black or it's white, okay? Um, It's you love God or you hate him. Andrew, that quiet servant leader, constantly bringing people to Christ. We got Philip, the details guy. There's always one of them in the crowd. Bartholomew, the scholar. Matthew, the recovering rebel, the evangelist for Jesus. Thomas, the faithful follower. James of Alphaeus, the obscure one. We don't hear much from him, but Thaddeus, we have the energy and hype guy. Simon, the activist, the political guy. And Matthias, who replaced Judas. And we've been talking about their personalities. We've been talking about how Jesus just surrounds himself with all kinds of different people. He doesn't just live in an echo chamber surrounded by only people who agree with him or see life the exact way as him but instead surrounds himself with all sorts of different personalities. I think it's a great example for us to be okay with differing personalities in our friend groups and in our discipleship groups and and I think that is a neat thing about Jesus. But each week I've tried to bring in a modern pioneer and when I mean modern, more the 18 or 1900s than even the times that walked when Jesus was here. And this week, girls, we have a lady, okay? Um, and we're, and we're, gonna, we're gonna leverage a lady. We're gonna bring her up on the screen. She demonstrated a whatever, I'll surrender my comforts. Whenever, I'll surrender my plans. And however, I'll surrender my ways. Who is this? Um, she was born in Ireland in 1867, and she was the oldest of seven. So any big family girls out there, you had a big family, the oldest of seven, she was probably what? Like a second mom probably, taking care of the rest of the ones, big families, you often see that oldest sibling. Many of you ladies, if you're the oldest sibling, you're still taking care of your sisters maybe to this day in adulthood, okay? You know, she was that oldest of seven. Now this young lady actually had a lifelong battle with a disease. She was born with neuralgia which is a disease that affects the nerves. Um, If you live with that today, you know there's some modern medicine that helps it with it, but it is a painful, painful struggle. Well, she didn't live in the time period of even the modern medicine we have, and she lived in great pain, and she would never know when the neuralgia would act up, and these nerves would be in tremendous pain. If you have headaches because of nerves or things like that, you understand how paralyzing that pain is, and you have compassion on this young lady who was born with it and, and lived life with it. In fact, it said that sometimes two weeks at a time she'd be bedridden because of the pain that she experienced. Very hard to dedicate or commit yourself to anything when you live in that much pain. How many of us, just a little bit of a struggle shuts us down? She lived with neuralgia. She went to a ladies' college where she was born and actually accepted Christ there in college at this ladies' college. At the age of 15, she came to know the Lord Savior. You ever get saved in your teenage years? Okay, she's with you. She's one of them. And it was at a Hudson Taylor convention. Hudson Taylor, the famous missionary, was at a Hudson Taylor convention where she 
get, got the call to become a missionary to what country? Has anybody figured out who this is yet? To India, this is Amy Carmichael. Anybody know the name? Amy Carmichael, the famous missionary. This is her biography. I, I trust that it inspires you. She went to India, inspired to be a missionary there, but was brokenhearted at childhood prostitution she was witnessing that was going on at the Hindu temples. Now, I don't want you to picture teenage and even adult women. They were prostituting little girls. And being hor horrified by this, being actually burdened by this herself, Amy would at times rub cocoa beans all over her, dress like the natives, and walk in and try to smuggle some of the little girls out to get them to safety, those that were being abused in such uh, terrible ways. She created a fellowship. She actually is an entrepreneur. So any young ladies out there who desire to be an entrepreneur, she started her own organization, um, Don Hover, if I can sound it correctly, fellowship, in 1901. And she, orphaned, and she had this orphanage for over 130 children and even bringing boys into it that were being prostituted as well and, and saving these young children in India. What, what a story this lady had. Uh, sadly, her life, her life takes a turn. Um, when she was, let me get this right, at 64 years of age, she fell. She had a, a real terrible fell, fall and um, she spent the last 20 years of her life in a bed. What if God had that for you and you didn't even know that yet? That, that 20 years of your life would be spent in a bed. Now, now before you mourn for Amy, God used that time in her bed. For Amy grabbed a pen and a paper and began to write. And some of the stories and some of the accounts of her ministry as well as her books are incredibly inspiring. And I tell you that almost shockingly because I had never read any of them. In fact, when she was brought to my attention this week, literally this week, um, I went and studied her. I thought, you know what? That might work. That testimony might work because I've had people say, hey, give me ideas for pioneers. Some really good ideas have come. They're coming possibly. But as I was reading this, I'm like, this is a hidden treasure in Christendom. I mean, Amy Carmichael has some of the best quotes out there. I've got Andrew Murray quotes on my walls, E.M. Bounds. I've got Oswald Chambers. I've got all these guys' quotes. I love quotes. Quotes are like little popcorn nuggets of goodness that get me through a day. I love to be inspired because I'm constantly trying to be a better version of myself. Um, Amy Carmichael is loaded with great quotes. Now, I say that because I'm not gonna take for granted um, you know her stuff. And so I've selected my favorite and just some of the study that I've done, okay? So I, I've scoured hundreds of pages already this week because I really enjoy biographies. I'm getting into it even more as I get older. Young people, weird things happen to you. Like as you get old, you start talking about like scenery. Oh, that's beautiful. And your kids are like, what do you, stop, you know? You, you start liking mashed potatoes instead of Buffalo Wild. It's weird. It's like you just comfort things. It's like weird. Well, here's me. I'm starting to read more biographies because I'm, I'm, I'm getting like, you know, now that I'm into my early 30s, you know. Oh, you're laughing. Okay. Um, Amy Carmichael's got great stuff. And what I love about her is when she died, she said, no gravestone. 
I want it to be about me. I don't want to be remembered that way. Well, too bad, Amy. They built a huge one over in India. But um, she was honored by her children. The kids of the orphanage put a birdbath out and put her name in their language in India, which means mama. They called her mama, which is just awesome. She was their mama. Amy didn't care about the two dates that you can't control. She practiced what she preached her whole life. I mean, this young lady, she went through her entire life single, okay? And, and she had more to pour out into other people than, than very few people that you'll ever meet. She practiced what, have you ever heard that line, practice what you preach? Don't just talk. If you ever have wisdom poured in your life, you'll have a mentor in your life, young people, that'll say things like this. Hey, don't, don't listen to what they say, okay? Listen to what they do. You say, how can you listen to what they do? Watch what they do. That will speak louder than what they say. Practice what you preach. Amy Carmichael did that. There's two dates you can't control. The date you're born and the day you die. God has that preordained. Scripture tells me so. What you can do is the dash in between. See, on your gravestone, it's gonna have a date and a date. There's this statistic out there. 10 out of 10 people die. It's that dash in between. What's that gonna be? That's what God's called you to. And if you got a pulse, you got a purpose. So don't anybody in here let the devil lie to you and say you're, you're forgotten or you're lost by God. He knows you're here. He has you here for a reason this morning. What are you gonna do with your dash? Amy gave her life to living what she preached. And I wanna give you just a few of her quotes just to see how delicious these are. I'm calling her officially the Mary Poppins of Christianity. It's my tagline. Because she's got these pop-up quotes that are just awesome. If moms, if you had a kid and, and, and you wanted a nanny, you would call Amy Karma, you watch my kids, okay? And just pump this kind of truth into them. I'm gonna let you hear a couple of her stuff just in case you don't go home and read three biographies, okay? Here's one of them. Amy, what do you think on slander, gossiping? Let nothing be said about anyone unless it passes through these three sieves. That's that thing you do, take spaghetti you know, or whatever and let it go through the sieves. A filter. Is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? Some of you have seen acronyms built on that. You didn't even know it came from Amy Carmichael. Is it true? Or I'm not gonna say it. Not, well, I heard. No, is it true? Can I verify it's true? Otherwise, I'm not gonna say it. Is it kind? Kindness isn't niceness. I can be nice to you and not like you. Kindness is wishing good on another person. Is it kind? Because otherwise I'm not gonna say it. Is it necessary? I mean, it might even be true, but does it need to be said? Amy had this in her head and it guided her and she practiced this and preached this. Amy, Amy, what are your thoughts on suffering, you went through a lot with neuralgia. She said this, let us not be surprised when we face difficulties. When the wind blows hard on a tree, the roots stretch and grow stronger. Let it be so with us. Let us not be weaklings, yielding to every wind that blows, but strong in spirit to resist. She didn't have a poor me attitude. In fact, she wasn't surprised when sufferings came into her life. And she was determined to persevere through them. 
How about truth? Some of you like to speak the truth. You'll like this quote from Amy. She says this. We are so afraid to offend, so afraid of stark truth, that we write delicately, not honestly. I'll tell you what, she was a tough cracker. Tough cookie. Tough person. Wow. How about on obstacles, Amy? You faced a lot of obstacles. There was a lot of opposition to what you did and there was a lot of pushback in what you were doing for those orphans. It is great to be faced with the impossible for nothing is impossible if one is meant to do it. Wisdom will be given and strength when the Lord leads, he will always strengthen. In other words, Amy's saying, whatever God calls me to do, it's not impossible because he's calling me to do it and he's gonna give me the strength to do it regardless of what others say. Wow. What a lady. How about on faith? This is a series on faith. What would Amy say about faith? All along, let us remember we are not asked to understand, but to obey. How many struggle seeking to understand when that's not something we're asked to do? We're asked to obey. What would you say about hope, Amy? She says this, joys are always on their way to us. What? They're always traveling to us through the darkness of the night. There is never a night when they are not coming. Amy would lay in bed picturing joy coming at her. Oh, there's joy that comes in the morning. Amy knew this. How about hard work? I would rather burn out than rust out. I'd rather burn out than rust out. I've heard some people even saying recently, look, if I'm going down, I want to go down swinging, not hiding. I would rather burn out than rust out. Wow. And finally, how about forgiveness? We could all use a lesson on forgiveness. Amy said, if I say, yes, I forgive, but cannot forgive, as though God, who twice a day washes all the sands on the shores of the world, could not wash such memories from my mind, well, then I know nothing of Calvary love. And that is one of the neatest lines I found in reading about Amy. She talked about Calvary love. She penned it, kind of this phrase. When I live that way, that's Calvary love. What's Calvary love? Sacrificial love, unconditional love. That's Calvary love. And she had it and she lived it. And I know nothing of Calvary love. You know, today I wanna talk about hypocrisy. I want to talk about faking it. I want to talk about hiding something. And it's not the funnest message in the world. It's not something that is really exciting to share because I think we all understand we all struggle with hypocrisy. We all sometimes don't practice what we preach. And we're in a time period where there's a lot of things being asked of us and told us to do that we see hypocrisy in even ourselves. And we're struggling with that. It seems to be all around us. So that's why I want you to understand, I share this message with humility, not uh, this is what you need to hear, this is what we all need to hear. I'm inspired by Amy's life that she practiced what she preached and I want to live a life that lacks hypocrisy but I have to understand this, I'm not gonna be perfect. The church isn't gonna be perfect. If you're home today and you've never walked in the doors of the church because you hate the church, this message might be an encouragement to you. There's nobody perfect in a church, but Jesus is, and he's not gonna fail you, and he wants to do some work on your heart today. 
And so when I say we're gonna talk about hypocrisy, don't go on the defensive, and I also don't want you to let the devil lie to you this morning and just beat the tar out of you with condemnation. Jesus loves his kids, and he wants to grow us and strengthen us. He wants us to practice what we're preaching. And so today, if you're here and you've been struggling with a secret sin, you maybe have battled it for years. Or maybe you have something in your past and it haunts you and just continues to come up. In a room this size, I promise you, there are secrets. And nobody really wants to talk to them, but they're real and you battle them. And I don't care what age you are or how long you've lived. There are things in your life that you regret. They've taught you and you've grown from it. But there's also some things in our life we wish they would just stop. I hope this message today not only inspires you to want to be authentic, but encourages you to the importance of it. For Jesus, when dealing with hypocrisy, would use the phrase, whoa. And this isn't a little kid coming down the stairs on Christmas Day, whoa. Wow. Nope. This is whoa. Warning. 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 And in a passage I want to leverage today before we go to our section of Acts is where Jesus gave out some woes to the Pharisees who he called hypocrites. And he taught his disciples the importance of authenticity. Let's hear from him today, establish an understanding of how Jesus views hypocrisy, and then go to our section today in Acts where hypocrisy is lived out and dealt with in a way that is extremely startling, a little concerning, and definitely eye-opening. Heavenly Father, use, use this lesson of Ananias and Sapphira to teach us. Use our passage today to leverage a desire within us to walk with authenticity, with our sins confessed, right before you. So Lord, search my heart. If there's any wicked way, would you please forgive me of it? That I might be a vessel used by you to share your truth to your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Watch what Jesus says. He calls his guys over. And he says this. To the crowds and the disciples. So there's crowds gathered around. Jesus gathers around. He says this. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. They have leadership. They're the leaders. All authority has been placed by God. We talked about that this last week. So, so do whatever they observe and whatever they tell you. I want you to listen to your authorities. Do what they say. But don't do what they do. Don't do the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. Did you know that scripture? Did you think it was just a fun line? Practice what you preach. Did you know that was out of Jesus' mouth? They preach, but they don't practice it. He continues. Jesus says, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They make it real hard. They put mandates on people. They make life really difficult, but they're not willing to live them out themselves. This is what the Pharisees do. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They're the ones who live a certain way, and then when it's time to post on Facebook, they do everything differently. They do all their deeds 
to be seen by others. Don't be like that. And then he continues, kind of digs in. Uh, uh, he says, for they make, they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. They just love their titles. They love the best parties. They love to be at the highest place of honor, and they love their phylacteries. And you're like, yeah, I love my phylactery too, sweetheart. What's a phylactery? All right, let's go to seminary here for a quick second here. Let's talk about what a phylactery is. I think it's important to have historical background, which is part of a hermeneutic of reading scripture. A phylactery is something that the Pharisees would do to kind of separate themselves from the commoner. I say it kind of in a sarcastic manner because their whole goal was to elite themselves above anyone else. They put these little boxes on their heads and they would tie them. And in these boxes, they would have verses that they would pull out. It's not the worst practice, but I would discourage you. It'd be a little odd for you to do that. If I walked in here with a box on my head, might mess up my hair. But they would also tie these things around their hands. They'd tie them all around, okay, and they'd have a box there too. And they would leverage this, and it was just more things, just more accessories to say, we're above you. And, and Jesus is like, we see them. We got you guys. We know you're better than everybody else. He said, but you are not to be called rabbi. For you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth. I don't want you walking around calling people father. For you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors for you have one instructor, the Christ. Don't fall into this trap of worshiping men. Because here's the deal. The world says the bigger you are, the cockier you are, the stronger you are, the tougher you are, the defiant you are, the, the proud you are, you're gonna get ahead. And you know what? Oftentimes in this world, that's exactly what America's looking for. But Jesus says, I wanna do something counterintuitive. And for all the young people out there, all the college kids who wanna be elite, just listen to me for a second. This is what Jesus would say to you. You wanna be great? I want you to be great too. But here's my advice. Jesus says this. The greatest among you will be servants. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself, he's going to get humbled. But whoever humbles himself, he's going to be exalted. You notice Jesus didn't say sometimes. Whoever exalts himself, whoever says, I'm the man, whoever bullies people, whoever yells at people, calls people names, gets all big-headed and stuff, whoever humbles himself, I'm gonna humble him. Whoever exalts himself, I'm gonna humble him. And whoever humbles himself and admits their need and their weakness and comes to me with humility, I wanna exalt them. And I believe that's what our Lord and Savior did with Amy Carmichael, a missionary living in singlehood by herself in India, facing all sorts of opposition from heavy, heavy authority, continue to love those little girls. And God has exalted her and used her in massive ways. Jesus lays this bedrock, this bedrock, and then he gives out seven woes to the Pharisees. Whoa, warning, warning, alert. When God says don't do something, he means don't hurt yourself. And so this is big. And in the sixth woe, Jesus says something 
that I think speaks, as we were talking about gravestones with Amy, I think this speaks to our, our lives and, and even, even uh, tombs even. Watch this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. Many of you drive around still see today that tombstones are primarily white. What is a whitewashed tomb? What's the historical background to this? It's an interesting note. They would pilgrim for Passover to Jerusalem. And so pilgrims were constantly coming to Jerusalem for Passover. So you know what they do? They had their tombs everywhere and they would whitewash them. Get white on them, all right? Some of you are do-it-yourselfers and you're like, ooh, whitewash a brick fireplace, hang on. They would whitewash these tombs, but they did it on purpose for two, two reasons specifically. The first one was that it would just look nicer, but there was a second term and the second reason. It was very much the reason they did this. Whitewashing basically said, don't go near that. So you need to understand this a little bit about the ceremonial laws of that time period. If somebody were pilgrimaging to Passover, especially a priest or anybody like that, and they walked into an area that was a grave or a tomb, they would become what is called defiled and could not go and perform their duties that they've been called to do as a pious Jew. So they would whitewash them, and a modern-day equivalent would be probably like police tape or warning tape. Don't go near here. Don't defile yourself. And they whitewash them, saying, that is actually a bad thing. Stay away from it. Jesus goes, hey, Pharisees, you know what you are? You're a bad thing that I want people to stay away from. You outwardly appear beautiful, but are within full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. This is how Jesus sees hypocrisy. He said, Jesus, I don't want to have a hypocritical spirit. I don't want to be a hypocrite. I want to be authentic before you. I mean, my word, you turned on a church service or came into the house today. You want to follow Jesus. What are some signs that I might have a hypocritical spirit myself? Well, I would tell you to watch out for a few things because the reality is, folks, how you live is really what you're preaching. Moms and dads, if you're worried, you're teaching your children hypocrisy. I promise you, the way you live will speak louder than anything you say. You've heard the line, practice what you preach. May I offer up a new one? You preach what you practice. In other words, your kids are gonna model your coworkers are gonna model, leader, whatever you actually do. Kids, I don't want you lying. Mom, it's for you. Tell them I'm not here. We, we, we can't live a certain way that is different from our words. I don't wanna share this story in a judgmental tone, but I was recently at a Wawa, and you can judge me for that. I came across and I got in line, six feet apart, of course. Her mom, she was scolding her young son. Don't touch that. He was going for candy bars, and we all know what the top five candy bars are in this church. <laughs> but he was going for candy bars. Don't touch that. It's bad for you, it's really unhealthy. She was doing the loud talks, so she was preaching it to all of us. That's unhealthy. That stuff's just unhealthy. It kind of made me kind of who I am to want to go get a candy bar, but I didn't. <laughs> and so when she finished with her son, she said, yeah, could I have four packs of Marlboro? 
I think we all have inconsistencies. And so before you judge the character in that story, one of the things that it reminds me when I see inconsistencies in people's life is, hey, Chris, hey, Chris, before you got something to say, hold up a mirror. Oh, there you are. You got that plank there? You want to take a look at that? Oh, yeah. Whenever I see hypocrisy, the first thing that comes to my mind is, where are yours, Chris? Not a judgmental spirit, but I want to share that with you because it don't matter what mom says. If you're preaching an altar of health, then what you do is different than what you say. And we know that in all stories. And we all have these things that we're doing. Maybe Jesus wants to tell you right in the middle of service, right now he wants to say, you know where yours is. You know where yours is. I wanna work on it with you. Hypocrisy shows up, it's glaring sometimes. A judgmental spirit. If you have a hypocritical spirit, you have a glaring habit of pointing out others' inconsistencies. If you have a hypocritical growing spirit, you have a superiority complex. You have a glaring habit of declaring all views as inferior to your own. If there's hypocrisy growing with inside you, you probably have a justification disorder. What do I mean by that? You have a glaring habit of excusing your approach to life. Well, people do that, yeah, but I, don't, I mean, I don't need to do that. And then you have a victim fixation. You have a glaring habit of ignoring personal responsibility to the issue. Watch for those things. Don't let them take root in your life. What inconsistencies, Lord, am I struggling with? Because I know you don't want it. And I'm not hiding anything from you. You see everything. Your thoughts, children of God, are like spoken words to God. He doesn't need you to voice them out loud. Well, I didn't say it. And so the God who loves you, who knows everything about you, is far more familiar with the inner girl and the inner guy than anybody around you in this room or in your home. Wants to say to you, hey, we gotta clean this up. We don't wanna be whitewashed tombs. I can't afford that coming into the church. And with that background, walk into the book of Acts. Last week, what was the church doing? Peter and John had been arrested, remember, for preaching the truth. They were thrown into prison, but then later released because they couldn't find anything really to nail them on. But they threatened them, most likely with their lives. And so the church is being threatened at an all-time high and is facing uncertainty like they never have before. And what did the church do? What did this early church do that was growing day by day? They heard the threats. Scripture says this. Go ahead, one slide. When the guys were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them, all their threats. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. And I want you to take note of this. When they heard the threats, when they were faced with pressure, when they had all this uncertainty, not one of them asked for their circumstances to change. God, don't let this happen to us. Not one of them. Their prayers were this, God, unify us in prayer, remind us to trust, prepare us for coming opposition, strengthen us to be bold, and empower us for your mission. God, change us if you're not gonna change the circumstances. I didn't share with you what happened when they did this. Last week, especially. 
But here's what happened. And when they prayed, they, the place in which they were gathered together started to shake. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. We don't see a second baptism here. We see a second filling, which even believers are called to do. And they continued to speak the word of God with what? With boldness. God answered the prayer. And joy was coming in the morning. And God was doing neat things. And we see our pioneers launching out. The church now is just a few weeks old. Thousands of people are coming to Christ. I call this scene the beautiful dawning of the early church. Let's see what happens next to these pioneers. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. They were taking their stuff, their earthly stuff, and say, hey, it's not mine, I'm gonna use it for everybody. I had a mentor of mine say, hey Chris, try to never own anything you wouldn't lend out to someone else. I really took that to heart because that's a struggle sometimes. That's mine. No, no. Try not to own anything you wouldn't lend out to someone else. Now, now, obviously, there are certain people that have not earned your discernment to hand them something. But when you can, or when it's called upon, don't look at it as yours. Look at it as something that you would lend to someone else. You know what? Our church is phenomenal at this. Many of you have used your homes that God's blessed you with. Don't be ashamed of them. You've used your homes or, or your, your, some of your material possessions to bless other people. And this church has been a huge benefit of that. I have gone to some really neat gatherings in the past years at this church. We've had pool parties in the past years at this church that you've used for teenagers to come over. I mean, we have seen you guys do awesome stuff saying, hey, what's mine? I wanna bless other people with. I've watched some of you loan large vehicles to let people go down to the airport and get picked up and come back. I mean, this church, man, they, we get this and praise God for that. I wanna celebrate that as part of our church. But the early church, they were taking it to another level. They said, hey, what's mine is yours. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. We have really felt that. 2020 has been, I'm gonna be nice here, an interesting year as a pastor. But you know what I've really felt, church? God's great grace has been on us, amen? Through all of this, God's great grace has been poured on us, and God, I wanna say publicly, we don't deserve it. And that's what grace is. If you're family, you're doing all right, you don't deserve that. You've had great grace on you, amen to that. Thank you, Lord, for that. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands and houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we have this new church endeavor we're gonna do. We're gonna all sell our... No, no, we're not gonna do that. Here's the principle. They just wanted to help each other as much as they could. You know, your Deacon Benevolent Fund has gone out to over $50,000 has gone out just this year to different people in different needs. We've been able to help with some hospital bills. We've been able to help with some mortgages that I had struggles with. Do we cover the whole need? Of course not. But there's been things that we've been called to do as a church family to love, and it's come from much of your giving and your generosity to bless other people in this time. We even plan a special gift for our missionaries at the end of the year because we know it's been hard for them and they've been losing support from many churches. 
God has blessed that. We wanna be a church that's like that. And it distributed to each as any had a real, I would like to put need for that is the context. Thus Joseph, there was this guy Joseph who was also called by the name Barnabas which means the son of encouragement. Whenever Jewish writing put the son of encouragement, they described this person and gave him a new name based on how they lived. Do you know anybody super encouraging? The Jews would call him a Barnabas, okay? That's a Barnabas guy. So his original name was Joseph, but he's called Barnabas. And for all you people who just love genre and writing and things like that, the book of Acts, Luke, it's called Luke and Style. He likes to introduce major characters just briefly. And so he's introducing to you what will become a very major character as we move through the book of Acts, Barnabas, super encouraging guy of the Levite tribe, a native of Cyprus, so he lived on that island. You know what he did? He sold a field that belonged to him and he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. He sold a field and he laid it all down. I mean, this is an extraordinary gift. And there have been times where our church has received extraordinary gifts. He gives this extraordinary gift and I'm sure the word got out. Did you hear what Joseph Barnabas did? I mean, he, he gave it all to the guys. But unfortunately, it seems that there was a couple that saw this and wanted the attention or at least wanted to be seen as a Barnabas but are gonna get exposed for not being. Their names are Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias, his name carries the idea of Yahweh is gracious, and so his name is even gonna be hypocritical. And Sapphira's name means beautiful, so she was most likely gorgeous, but what she does is ugly. Here's the story. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back. This kept back in its original language is the same kept back in the Septuagint that referred to Achan's sin, which he was killed for in the Old Testament. He kept back intentionally withheld, secretly withheld something, desiring for it to look like he gave everything. He wanted the credit, he didn't want to actually do it. Some of the proceeds brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But you see, the Holy Spirit is great with Peter and Peter has this discernment. You ever meet someone with kind of special discernment? They kind of just get things. I'm married to one. She's got incredible discernment and many times we'll go, I think you need to be careful there, Chris. I'm not liking that. And I heed that because I have seen in her life a very strong testimony of catching hypocrisy that I might have fallen prey to in my trust. I thank God for my helpmate in that area. It doesn't seem Ananias had that with his. They sold that. And Peter says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. Ananias, you're not hiding from God. Why have you allowed Satan to win in your life? Peter always knows who the real enemy is. Ananias, 
You've let the devil win. You've fallen prey to temptation and you've kept park. You're lying, not to me, to God. And he continues, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Who needs that this morning? You're not lying to us. You're not hiding from us. You're lying to him. Ananias, you're not lying to us. You're lying to God. He sees this. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Oh, whoa, whoa, wait, what? Time out. You were checking an app. You just tuned back in, didn't you? Wait, what? Yeah, yeah. Ananias, you've lied to God. Ananias, dead. And this is the scene. The young man arose, picked him up, wrapped him up, and carried him out. Now, if someone were to sin publicly, and we all knew it, and they fell over dead, I think holiness would raise in the church. <laughs> What's going on here? Now remember, we're in Acts. This is a transition period, and so some of the ways God was working in the book of Acts, he doesn't necessarily work today, but there was a point to everything he was doing, including tongues, including healings, including these fire that was coming down the room. There was a point to it. He was establishing his church. He was bringing this, and they were to learn from these illustrations, and after an interval of about three hours goes by, his wife comes in. Here comes Sapphira, not knowing what happened, and Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the lamb for so much. I love this, Peter. You know what it's like to betray your heavenly father and you wanted to give Sapphira a second chance. I love this. He gave her a chance to tell the truth. Peter knows he's no perfect guy and he says, tell me whether you sold the lamb for so much. Luke doesn't want to give us how much, so they say so much. And she says, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet who have buried your husband are at the door and they will come to carry you out. Here they come. Immediately she fell down and breathed her last. And when the young men came and found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And all God's people said, um, um, why so harsh? Uh, uh, can I raise my hand? Why so harsh? What's got going on here? Folks, what Ananias and Sapphira were doing were a direct affront and attack to the early church that could bring division, that could bring hurt and pain, and could cripple the work that God was doing. And he's very protective of his church. Let me help illustrate in scripture, there's a metaphor for the church. It's not a facility. It's the body of Christ. That's what the church is. Ecclesia means an assembly of believers. Anybody who's God's kids gather together. It's God's church. But there's a metaphor he gives in scripture. And he calls his church a female, okay? And he refers to her as her. And he says that she is his, anybody know? Bride. The church is the bride of Christ. He's preparing her. 
He's going to bring her to a huge wedding feast one day that I intend to be at. He loves her dearly. And the problem we often have is we don't have a good theology of what the church is to Jesus, so we don't get how much he doesn't like it when you mess with her. Husbands, let me talk to you for a second. You want anybody yelling at your wife? You want anybody lying to your wife and abusing her? I hope not. And I know no marriage in here is perfect. But the word bride here is key. You remember the day, guys, you stood there and you looked at her? And you said, I give you my life. There's very few people, I mean very few people, that I would die for. And my girl's one of them. Jesus says, the church is my girl. That's the metaphor. She's my bride. I had a great mentor in college that, that I just looked up to him so much. And he was a big, bold guy, just walked around. He talked like this too. And he would say, gentlemen, he'd come into the room. We were playing basketball. Gentlemen, he was the president of the college at the time. Gentlemen, where's my bride? Have you seen my bride? And we'd be like, there she is. There she is. Ah, oh, there's my girl. And he'd walk over. And we always knew he drove his big Cadillac and he'd get out. There's my bride. And, and I, to this day, I call my wife my bride because of him. But Solomon's kind of rubber stamped that for me. You know what he says to me? He says, Chris, a lot's gonna happen in your marriage, but I want you to remember the bride of your youth. That's key. I want you to remember where this all started. Don't let a distraction slip you up. But he says, here's the metaphor. I love the church because she's my bride. I'm the bridegroom. She's my girl. That great mentor of mine said, one time my son spoke to her a certain way and I said to him, don't you ever talk to my bride like that. And I stuck with me forever. I was like, wow, you put your son in where the totem pole is in your home. Oh yeah. He's my son, and I love him to death, but he will never talk to my girl like that. That stuck with me, to protect disrespect on my girl. She's mine. God gave her to me. And when I look at the love I have for my wife, it's nowhere close to Jesus' love for the church, because you know what he did for the church? He died for her. He gave his life for her. He loved her so much. And he doesn't want her attacked. And with that emotion and with that power, hear the offense that sometimes can happen on a church. Look at this. I call them sins against the church. I picked out seven. Exploiting her for gain. Second Peter says, in their greed, they exploit the church. There's nothing wrong with being successful. There's nothing wrong with being paid vocationally. There's a lot wrong with exploiting a church, taking advantage of her, slandering her reputation, Titus 3, 2, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling and be gentle. Talking this over with Pastor John Adams, he said, you know, when people do these Google reviews and attack churches that can't defend themselves, when they hit send, they actually probably, if they had a good theology of the church, they should be shaking as they hit send. Because Jesus is seeing that. And yes, organizations mess it up. But be careful how you slander the reputation of his bride mocking her orders. She has been given orders by God to practice things and to stand on the truth of the Bible. 
Yet people make fun of her for doing it. He sees that. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, he will also reap. Many people mock what the church is called to do. And she's listening to Jesus who has given her truth to obey. And she stands on that, yet it's made fun of and mocked and called archaic and irrelevant and stupid. Guys, would you like if someone called your wife stupid? Defy her leadership. Hebrews 13, 17 says, the church has been given leaders to submit to. Do you know submitting to your church's leaders? Many pastors don't preach this and feel self-serving, but it's in the text. When you submit to your leaders, it takes you off the hook. You might go, I don't know, this year, I don't really agree with this or agree with that, but your leaders are doing the best they can to love you through this with what we have in our information. And when you submit to that church leadership, you're off the hook. We're the ones who give an account for it. Say, I'm just doing what they're told. Bunch of weirdos right now, but I'm doing, that might be the case. But when you submit to authority, you're, you know, you're actually, that's a, that's a form of worship by obeying what God's put in place at this time. It's a sin against the church to condemn her failures. I, I hear stuff on Facebook, different things like this. I have people do that stuff for me, but I hear stuff. You know what the problem with the church is? You know, if this happens, it's gonna be the church's fault. I just wanna barf. Condemnation is of the devil. I had a pastor share with me. He said, Chris, I want you to remember this as a young preacher. Let this stay with you. Would you want someone shaming your wife every Sunday? Don't use your pulpit to preach shame and guilt. Use it to inspire God's bride. Use it to encourage Jesus' bride. Use it to confront her in gentleness because you love her so much. And use it to motivate her. We have tried to honor that desire at this church to encourage God's church, Jesus' church. As Christ loved the church and gave us up and then finally hurt her with division. Have you ever noticed when there's division in a family, it just makes mommy sick. Grandmas start knitting pillows, sending verses to people to tear, turn around. It just makes the ladies so, guys, we can put up with a lot, but it just kills mama, kills her when there's division. Jesus doesn't like division in his church. He dealt with it so harshly and so quickly so that there would be a fear of the Lord. Don't stand in the way of this rock that I'm building. She's my bride and I'm preparing her. And one day I'm gonna come for her. And when Jesus promises his girl something, he plans to deliver on it, amen? He's the victor. He's gonna have a wedding. It's gonna be a great banquet. Jesus is the victor. And when he returns, he's not gonna come the suffering servant that gets ushered to a cross and nailed by little men. He's gonna come on a white horse. It's white because he's the victor. He'll have fire in his eyes and he's gonna wipe everybody out that gets in his way because he was faithful as just and will complete his mission. And if you know Jesus as your personal savior, you'll be a part of all of it. You're a part of his bride. Have you ever come to a time in your life where you've said, Jesus, I wanna be a part of the bride of Christ. I wanna be loved the way you love church. I wanna be a part of that. Scripture's so clear, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you can be saved. 
you can have that husbandman. You can look forward to that wonderful day. You can have hope. You can have joy despite circumstances. And you can practice that and preach it with great faith. Is there a time where you have called upon the name of the Lord to be saved? God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I pray even today you'd say, I am so tired of doing life alone. I want a savior. I want Jesus. As we close today, let me leave you with a little homework assignment so you can be out there practicing what you preach. Yeah, it'll only take me a minute to share it, but it's your homework. If you're here today and you're going, I've got some hypocrisy, I think, in my life and I'd really like to deal with it. One, let this message do step one. I want you to understand it's a threat. Don't let it go. If I told you you have a little bit of cancer, just a little bit, don't worry about it. You'd say, no, I got a threat. Sin that is in us will build up roots of bitterness that will affect our lives. 1 Corinthians, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Let's approach this with humility, hypocrisy, and deal with it. Second, ask the Lord to search. Psalm 139 says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. I heard a little girl pray at Kidstown one time. Dear Jesus, forgive me for all my sins, even the ones I don't know I did. I thought, what a theologically powerful prayer that little girl prayed. I loved it. Confess your need for mercy. Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his sin will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes will obtain mercy. You want mercy today? Your heavenly father says, come on, just confess it. Lord, I confess I've been doing this. There we go. That's my boy. That's my girl. He wants to give mercy. He wants to treat us in ways we don't deserve. It's incredible, the gospel. It's Calvary love. And then finally, share it with a friend. If you're really struggling and it's repetitive and repetitive, you need an accountability. You need to actually tell somebody. And that's where we usually hesitate. We like to keep our sins secret. But when we tell someone, it actually can help us. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power when it's working. If you're tired of repetitive sin, it has great power. Jesus wants to do a work on you. Heavenly Father, Lord, we look today at a very difficult subject, hypocrisy, and it's difficult because we feel we all have some things that are inconsistent. But Lord, we ask you to search us because we see there is a threat here that we need to deal with. We confess our need for mercy and we thank you for offering it. Lord, we wanna practice what we preach. We want to show the love of Christ because we live in a world that desperately needs believers to not be weaklings, as Amy challenged us, but to stand firm in the truth, to be bold, to follow our Savior, but to do so with such a spirit of gentleness and love that people would say, that love is different, and we'd be able to tell them that. You want to know why? Why? Because it's Calvary love. Thank you, Lord. May we walk in authenticity. Amen.